Genesis. Genesis 37, let us stand, uh, 32, excuse me, 32, 32. Let us stand for the reading of the word of God. Genesis 32. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. And now I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau. And furthermore, he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels and the, into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who did say to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. For thou didst say, I will surely prosper you, and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, even drove by, uh, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. And he commanded the one in front, saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third, and all those who followed the drove, saying, after this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before them, while he himself spent that night in the camp. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, and the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated, while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. 
And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. You may be seated. Another unusual chapter, one right after another. It gets better as we go along. In chapter 32, uh, Jacob is preparing to meet his brother Esau. And he's scared to death his brother Esau is going to do him harm. So the 32nd chapter, chapter tells us about the preparations that he's making. Now Esau has a good reason to be mad at him, right? Uh, Esau cheated him. Uh, Esau, uh, uh, Jacob cheated Esau. Jacob out-bargained Esau. And Esau uh, was very angry and very envious of Jacob. Now there are many fascinating things in this passage of Scripture. Uh, some of them hard to understand but all of them important for us to understand and see the implications of. For instance, in the very first verse, it says Jacob's on his way to Canaan, by the way. Jacob's on his way to Canaan, and as he was on his way, lo and behold, a mighty army of angels met him. Not one angel, but a mighty army of them. And so when, when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim means two camps. So if this is God's camp, why did he name it two camps? Probably because of the one camp of the angels and the one camp of his family. But now notice, there's nothing uh, miraculous about the appearance of angels. Angels are not supernatural. There's only one thing that's supernatural. What is it? God. God's the only one that lives super above nature. Everything else is per uh, perfectly natural. So these angels are natural. It's not uh, a miraculous if you see angels. You know there is an old wives' tale in the Roman Catholic Church and in Protestant churches that everybody has a guardian angel. And that guardian angel is out there to protect us, to keep us from any harm. Uh, Calvin said that's a depreciation of God's mercy. To say that everybody has one angel is depreciating God's power. Everybody has an army of, of angels. The Bible says that a couple times that we all have an army of angels surrounding us, protecting us, to impress us with God's power. God doesn't need angels, but God uses angels in our lives to uh, assure us and to remind us of his power in this mighty display of angelic force. This is the, not the first time we've seen angels. When's the last time we saw angels in the lives of the patriarch? Up and down Jacob's ladder. So God has seen a couple times that Jacob needs angels in his life, and maybe you do too. Maybe angels have come in your life and you've not been aware of it. Watch for them. Pray that God will bring them in his, into your life to display the glory of his power, as Calvin says, in this great theater of God's grace. So he's going along and he's surrounded by all these angels to protect him. And uh, that reassured him because he knew uh, Esau was mad at him. 
And Esau was very evil, very powerful, very envious. envious. And so Jacob sent messengers to his brother Esau, who lived in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. Now, Edom means Esau. So he was nice enough to name his country for himself. Uh, and of his own free will, he just freely chose to live in this mountain called Seir. We'll turn just quickly to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. And once again, you see the interplay of God's sovereignty and man's free will. The land of Seir was where Esau <coughs> freely chose to live. Why? It was outside the promised land. It was outside the covenant. He hated God. He hated God's law. He hated God's promise. He hated God's people. And so he freely chose to live in a land that was outside the land of Canaan. But look at Malachi chapter 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord through Israel, through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Esau freely chose to live in Mount Sire. God deliberately predestined that he lived there, that he lived in desolation with the jackals, with the wild animals. Because after all, remember, he was called a wild donkey. So here you see the interplay of God's uh, sovereignty. God deliberately chose for Esau to live in this mountain. And yet at the same time, Esau freely chose of his own free will where he would live. And so he says to Esau's messengers, verse 4 5, he said, I have wealth beyond your wildest dreams. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord Esau that I may find favor in his sight. Now, I don't think this is... Uh, Jacob being haughty with Esau. I think this is Jacob making an effort at reconciliation. After all, it was Jacob that sinned against Esau. And Jacob's very humble in here. Throughout this passage, he refers to Esau as his Lord and refers to himself as Esau's servant and has all of these animals and livestock that he's willing to share with Esau, I think it's a genuine attempt on the part of Jacob to restore proper relationships with his brother. But I think he went too far. Calls himself Esau, uh, Esau calls Esau Jacob's Lord, and Jacob, Esau's servant. What did God say they were? The reverse. God said that Jacob would be the Lord of his Esau. And that Esau would be the servant of Jacob. So in this attempt to uh, be conciliatory, he may have been a little too far. But it shows great humility. But it also, he may have also gone too far in all of the wealth he was and animals that he was willing to give Esau. You know why? Because in chapter 32 and chapter 33, the American, New American Standard Version calls them presents. Other translations properly call them blessings, covenant blessings, promised covenant blessings. So I think Jacob was willing to
to give to Esau the very covenant blessings that God had promised to Jacob. A little too far. But, nevertheless, we see a humility here in this man as he tries to make things right with Esau. He's also scared to death. Because Esau's bringing an army of 400 people. What are you going to do with an army? Throw a party? So Esau, so Jacob here is worried about what Esau's going to do when he comes. And it says in verse 6 that the messengers say that Esau is coming with an army of 400 men to, to meet Jacob. So verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. Now, throughout this chapter 32, you're going to see Jacob is a real man of faith. Jacob is a godly man. He is a man who is trusting his life and his family into the hands of God. And he's scared to death. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that those who believe in the Lord God Almighty sometimes, having been faithful believers, can also experience fear. But the faith overcomes the fear. So if something is threatening in your life and you feel fearful about it, don't think you're sinning. Uh, It's a normal thing for people to experience fear in the face of threat. But faith in the power and promises of God overcome that fear. So here's how he prepares himself. This is very smart. He's got a big family. He's got a lot of servants. He's got a lot of animals, livestock, or well. So he divides them into two companies so that if Esau comes after one, he won't kill them all. That somebody will escape. So he divides all of his company into two companies so that not all of them would be destroyed when Esau comes. What's the next thing he does? He prays. Look at that wonderful prayer in verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Jehovah, who did say to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. And with my staff, only I crossed the Jordan. And now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mothers and the children. For thou didst say, I will surely prosper you and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitudes. And then he did something else. He divided his big company into two companies so that not all of them would die if Esau was bloodthirsty. And then he prayed. And then he would send ahead a small amounts, of, but expensive amounts, of his wealth. He'd send messengers with a certain amount of wealth, a certain distance, and then another distance he'd send some more. So the closer Esau got, the more little pieces of wealth he would have. And hopefully by the time that he got to Jacob, he would appreciate that Esau was a wealthy man. Now, let's talk about this prayer. This is a model prayer. And I think most people miss it. But notice what he does, how he starts his prayer in verse 9. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father 
Isaac, O Lord, who did say to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. What's he doing in that, in that verse? He's adoring God. He's saying things about God that he loves about God. He's saying back to God things that God has revealed about himself. That's what adoration is. You adore your wife when you tell her uh, things about her that you love. And so that's what Jacob's doing in this verse. He's telling God about things in God that he loves. You're the God of Abraham. You're the God of Isaac. You're my Lord, my Jehovah, the one, the covenant God, the God who's going to be faithful to his promises. Uh, it, and that's why at the beginning of our worship service, the first prayer we have is a prayer of adoration of God every Sunday. The first prayer is a prayer simply adoring God for who he is. And the second thing Jacob does here is he confesses his sins. And the second prayer that we have in our worship services every Sunday is a prayer of forgiveness of sins. Now, you would be surprised at how little time Christians spend in adoring God. Try praying to God for 10 minutes and doing nothing in that prayer but telling God what you love about him. Don't ask him for anything. Just take five or 10 minutes telling him what you love about him. It'll be hard to do, I promise you, because you really want to get to the, and give me, and help me, and show me. So before you start asking God for anything, tell God how much you love him and why and what it is about him that he's revealed about himself that causes you to adore him with all your heart and all your soul. It's hard to do. And the reason it's hard to do is because we're so anxious that he help us. We're so concerned about our own selves and our own problems and our own needs that it's very difficult to spend any amount of time simply telling God what God has told us about himself that causes us to love him. O God of my father Abraham and my father Isaac, O Lord. And then in verse 10, he confesses what a sinner he is. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. For with my staff, my walking stick only, I cross this Jordan River, and now I have become a wealthy man of two companies. So after adoring God and his goodness and his mercy, then Jacob tells God, I don't deserve anything good from you. You've made me a wealthy man. You've not only made me a wealthy man, you've guided me and guarded me by your providence. I've been unfaithful to you. You've never been unfaithful to me once. You've never let one of your promises fall to the ground unfulfilled. I am so unworthy of any of these things. I'm unworthy of your loving kindness. I'm unworthy of your faithfulness. I'm unworthy of your truth and your mercy. That's the way we're to pray. That when we come to God in prayer and we adore him, then we tell him just what wretches we are. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a good-for-nothing wretch like me. Do you have any higher opinion of yourself than that? You have too high opinion of yourself. So here Jacob is telling God how wonderful he is and telling God what a wretch he is. What has he learned from God throughout this old Toledoth? What does daddy learn? Isaac. What does granddaddy learn? Abraham. That anything good we get from God is completely of sovereign, unmerited grace. 
That's been the theme in chapter after chapter after chapter. And Jacob has learned that well. He still has some things to learn, and we're going to see one very important thing he has to learn. But he has learned that truth. Now, look in the text you see for uh, verse 10. I'm unworthy of the loving kindness. That is, uh, as we've seen before when we've looked at that word, in the Hebrew Old Testament is one of the most pregnant words in the whole Old Testament. It is so pregnant, it is about to burst with truth. It is one of the most, one of the biggest words in definition in the whole Old Testament. The Hebrew word is chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, or simply H-E-S-E-D. And it can mean everything from covenant loyalty to covenant faithfulness to love to grace and on and on and on and on. My favorite definition of loving kindness and of chesed is relentless faithfulness to the covenant bond. Relentless faithfulness to the covenant bond. God is going to be faithful to that bond that ties us together relentlessly no matter what you do, no matter what anybody else does. Well, Jacob says, I am not worthy of such chesed. And also it says that he's not worthy of faithfulness. I'm not worthy of all your faithfulness which you've sworn to your servant. I think in the King James Version it may say truth. Does it say truth? Uh, well, the word truth the reason the New American Standard Version translated faithfulness instead of the way the King James translates the truth is because the word truth in the Old Testament means faithfulness. Uh, our our, the way we define truth is influenced by the Greeks. And we, for us, and it's okay, truth is uh, to say something that's accurate say something that's in accordance with reality. Speak truth. But in the Old Testament, truth meant faithfulness. That if you're going to speak truth to somebody, it simply means you're going to be faithful to every value made to him. One of the greatest illustrations of that is Rahab. You remember Rahab the harlot? In Jericho, had her apartment on the wall. You know about the whole wall coming down. By the way, the only part of the wall that didn't come down was her apartment, and it's still there. But anyway, so Rahab had an apartment, and the Jews sent some spies to check out how things were in Jericho. So they came to Rahab's apartment to hide. And then the Jericho police came to her house and they said, are you hiding out any Jews? And she said, no, they were here. I think I did see them, but they've gone some other direction. Now, she was telling the truth. They were in her house. They were right there. But she was being faithful to them and keeping them from being harmed by the police. If she'd have said yes and spoken truth in accordance with the fact, she would not have been faithful to those men. The police would have taken them away and killed them. So we are to speak in accordance with the facts, but the important thing to notice here is that God is always faithful to his word, faithful to you. He's true. He speaks truth. He is truth. And he is relentlessly faithful to that covenant bond he's established with us. Right, so, what about this model prayer? Number one, the first part is adoration of God. Number two, the second part is about confession of sin. Number three 
is Jacob is turning to God alone for protection and deliverance. He's not turning to anybody else. He's not looking to the power of man. He simply is asking God and God alone to deliver him. And so he rests in God's protection. Verse 11, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. So don't look for help or deliverance in anybody else but the living God. Now there's a fourth thing about this prayer. That's overlooked. Don't even pray like this much anymore. And as a result, our prayers hardly get above the ceiling. And it is this. Notice what Jacob does. It says in verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who did say to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I'm unworthy, etc. Deliver me, etc. Verse 12. For thou didst say, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Whenever Jacob asks for something from God, he quotes a scripture verse to back up his request. If you, and and that's why, if we don't know the Bible, our prayers are going to be very weak. Becky and I one time went to the Free Church of Scotland in Glasgow, Scotland, and the preacher was a man named Donald MacLeod. And so we went there and caused confusion right off the bat because every person had his assigned pew. And some of the little ladies there had been sitting in their pews for generations. And we sat in their pew. So that caused quite a stir. But then he got up for the pastoral prayer. I mean, he's not even getting ready to preach yet. He gets up to pray the pastoral prayer. And he prays for over an hour. And most of it is simply quoting Scripture to God. It's one of the most powerful things I ever heard in my life. And so the more you know the Bible, the more you're going to be able to quote back to God things God has taught you to pray for. But the point is, Jacob is arguing with God. Jacob is saying, "Uh, Lord, uh, you, you, you promised me that I was going to prosper. Dead men can't prosper. Deliver me from Esau. Lord, you promised me that I was going to have a lot of children. But dead men cannot produce children. So I pray that you'd be faithful to your promise to me. And so over and over, humbly, not in any kind of of arrogant way, Jacob is arguing with God, giving God reasons as to why God should answer his prayers. God, write this down somewhere. God loves to be won over by the strength of argument. As long as you take your arguments from the word of God and you offer them to him humbly and in faith. God loves to be won over by the strength of argument, as long as you take his, your arguments from his word and offer them to him humbly and in faith. You don't say, God, here's what I want, and here's my reason for telling you that. You don't give God suggestions based upon your own experience and your own reason. You don't say, I think, God, you ought to do that because it's my opinion that you ought to do that. No. Say, Lord, you promised me 
that I would prosper and that I would have children. Esau is on his way with 400 men, a dead man cannot prosper and have children. So I humbly ask you to be faithful to what you've promised me. Way to pray. And uh, by the way, God answered that prayer as we're going to see next week in chapter 33. So, verse 13 spent the night there, and then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milking camels, and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He's going to make Esau a rich man. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me, and put a space between droves. And he commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you, and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong? And where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to you to my Lord Esau. Jacob's behind me. Now you can see why he went too far. He's giving Esau his blessing that God gave him by promise. He calls himself Esau's servant and he calls Esau his Lord. All exaggerations in an attempt to reconcile. Verse 20, And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he'll accept me. Perhaps we will have a big party with those 400 men he's bringing. So the present passed on before him, while he himself spent that night in the camp. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone. Now here's this gigantic crowd of people that's coming with Jacob in a trek across the desert to the promised land. And he sends all of them ahead of him because he wants to send, spend private time with God by himself. So he's all alone now, which is what he wanted to be. He wanted to deal with God. And so in verse 24, a man wrestled with him. All night long. I'll tell you a time that I had to wrestle with a drunk all night long. I was a pastor of a church in Bristol, Tennessee. One of my best friends, who was a Vietnam veteran, was drunk as he could be. He had all kinds of problems because of the Vietnam War. And so he was drunk, and he was a his mother called me and he said, Joe Butch is in the kitchen. He's got his sister by the throat and he swears he's going to kill us. You got to come and do something. I said, well, where's his brother-in-law? He's got a brother-in-law there too. She said, he got him by the throat. So middle of the night, 12, 1 o'clock. I go into the house and I look in the door in the kitchen and there he's got his sister and his Brother-in-law by the throat, and the mother's over there screaming bloody murder. And I got to do something with this drunk guy. Big drunk guy. So I start calling him names. I start trying to make him as mad as a wet hen. So he would attack me and let them go, which is exactly what he did. 
He let his brother and his brother-in-law and sister loose, and then he came after me. And we wrestled, and I was his pastor, by the way. <laughs> and we wrestled around, and he was a good friend. When he, when he got sober, man, he was embarrassed. But we wrestled on the ground for hours, and a police car drove by. And I was thankful for the police car, except that the brother-in-law was standing over there, and the policeman said, what's going on here? And the brother-in-law said, that's okay, pastor. Uh, That's okay, sir. This is my pastor. So the police drove off. And so all I could do was just wait until he passed out. So uh, Jacob's wrestling with the man all night long. Where are you out? I can speak from experience. So he's wrestling with this. Now underline the word man. Verse 24, then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. Now, the New American Standard Version, I think, is doing something that's not very good. They're not capitalizing the he that refers to this man he's fighting. Apparently, because they don't realize that this man is also God. So I'll tell you when they should be capitalized. Verse 24, then Jacob was left alone with a man, wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he, the man, uh, capital H, saw that he had not prevailed against him, Jacob, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him, the man. Then he said, let me go. It's God talking. That should be a capital M. And he said, let me go. For the dawn is breaking. Is Jacob too strong for the living God? This is the almighty God talking. Let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now what's going on here? Is Jacob being audacious? Smart aleck? Is God being too weak to handle him? No. Jacob is simply saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me because you promised you would and you are relentless faithfulness. So I'm not going to let you go because I know you're going to be faithful. And I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. Verse 27, so he, that is this man, oh, by the way, Uh, You can see that he's God because God is the source of all blessing. He's asking this man to bless him because only God can bless you. So this person he's fighting is man and God. And when you go to Hosea, he also describes the situation as an angel. So this is the angel of the Lord who is God in a pre-incarnate human position. Jacob's wrestling with him all night. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me because you promised me you would. Verse 27. So the God man, the angel of the Lord, said to Jacob, what's your name? Now, God wasn't asking for information. God never asked for information. He was making a point. What's your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, God said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So Jacob, you are changed. You got a changed name because you're a changed man. You're not the same man you were when you cheated Esau out of his birthright. And so because your character is different, 
your name's got to be different. A, a person's name in the Old Testament caught the gist of his character. So now no longer is Jacob a deceiver. Jacob is a prince. Jacob is somebody who has striven with God, who's prayed to the Lord, and who would not let him loose until he blessed him and has prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said to him, this is great, please tell me your name. I says, Jacob, tell me your name. I'm going to change it to Israel. And Jacob says, okay, it's only fair. Tell me your name. But God said to him, is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. I'm not telling you my name. God does not let man give him names. Because to name something is to imply power over that thing. Adam named the animals. He had authority over all the animals. God says, I'm not going to let you give me a name. That implies you have authority over me. Nobody <laughs> gives me a name. I name myself. But I will bless you here. There's another great thing. Verse 30. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face. I wrestled with a man who is God. Yet my life has been preserved. Now, what is Jacob asking God? He knows God's name. I mean, look what he's called him. He's called him the God of my father Isaac, the God of Abraham, Jehovah, El Shaddai, Elohim. I mean, he knows God's name. So why is Jacob asking God for his name? A name, as we said, reveals the fullness of somebody's identity and character. Jacob says to Jehovah, you've broken me. You've taught me all kinds of lessons. Now I want to know you in all your fullness. I want to know your full name. I want to know everything I can about you. I want to know you in all of your glory and majesty and fullness. And God saying so many words. Jacob, I'll tell you that when Emmanuel comes. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the people of God had this longing for the Messiah. All the way back to Eve, had this longing that the Messiah would come and reveal the glory of God to them in the face of Jesus. That's what God's saying to Jacob here. Oh, I'm going to tell you my name. I'm going to show you the fullness of my name, all the glory of my name. I'm going to show you my name in the face of Jesus. So just hold on and live by my blessings in the meanwhile. So Jacob named the place Peniel because he says, that's where I've seen God face to face and I didn't die. And now the sun rose. And to commemorate this particular place, God did something to Jacob. Crippled him. Verse 30. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. See verse 25. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he that is God, man, touched the socket of his thigh. 
So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And he was badly crippled all the rest of his life. Jacob, I don't want you to ever forget this. And then in verse 32, Therefore, to this day, what day? Moses is talking now. Moses is the author of this book. And he says, And to this very day in which I live, hundreds of years after this event, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. So Moses says, hundreds of years after this took place, there's still a custom among the Jews. You don't eat the hip muscle of animals. Simply to commemorate. Now, that wasn't a law. That's not written in the law of God. That's just a custom they had for hundreds of years. They remembered. Jacob wrestled with God and prevailed. And Jacob saw God face to face. And God told Jacob, in the fullness of time, you will see the full revelation of my name in Jesus. So what's the lesson that Jacob had to learn in this chapter? That his worst enemy was himself. Esau wasn't his worst enemy. He was his own worst enemy. As my old professor used to say, the man that can destroy me the easiest is the man who wears my hat. So you remember that. Your worst enemy is yourself. That's the biggest adversary, more than Satan, more than anybody else around. And so what did God have to do? He had to teach Jacob that he was his own enemy by breaking him, by showing him his helplessness and his weakness and his total dependence on the power of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for teaching Jacob that. We pray that you teach us the same lessons you've, taught, you've uh, taught these patriarchs. Lord, impress upon us that you are the one that finally determines who receives all the benefits of your covenant. That you distribute the benefits of your covenant by sovereign grace alone. And you are the Lord. And that we meet you face to face in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.